Hello and welcome to the first episode of book three. Yay, we made it to the first episode of book three. There are some people who said you will not make it here. And I say pish posh to those people. We're here. <laughs> pish we made posh. It. We pish made posh. it. Pish posh apple shosh. Wait. <laughs> welcome to Avatar the Podcast. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Greg. Hello, I'm the other voice on the show. He's the pun guy. I'm the pun guy. When there's a pun, it'll happen. Oh, believe me. And it'll happen really early on this episode. <laughs> I was actually shocked and delighted because I'd missed it so much when you made that really great pun last episode. Yes. In yes. Escape of the Spirit World. That's what I do. Whether you like it or not, if you like it, it's great. If you don't, you might call it a punishment. Wow. Okay. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Yes. A pun in the first minute and a there half. You go. I like it. <laughs> Today, we're going to be covering the first episode of book three, The Awakening, or as we like to call it, Rogang. Get it? Because Rogang, because hair growing back. <laughs> Ang has hair now. And Ang has hair now. And it, oh, that's so terrible, but I love it. You're all welcome. That's two puns in the first two minutes. <laughs> it's a pun a minute average. That's crazy. That's incredible. That is. Before we dive into the episode, though, we want to go through some reviews we got recently, some five-star reviews that have been posted to Apple Podcasts. That's right. The first one comes from Cam Trout, who writes, dang good podcast with two A's in it. That is three puns. Wow. In the first... This one's not from me, obviously, but it's three puns in the first Still. two and a half minutes. We are cruising. Is there a Guinness Book of World Records for amount of puns in a podcast episode? I would imagine there is, and I don't want to know it because it would be a challenge. And I would like to keep Rob as our editor for the time being, forever, actually. <laughs> That's true. No yes. one look up that information. Do no not one, tell please. Us. Don't tell me. Cam Trout writes... I've been obsessed with Avatar The Last Airbender for years and finishing the Kyoshi novels on Audible. I was lost on my work commute. I found this podcast and it helped keep the fandom alive. It's pretty tough. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> this was not planned. I'm, <laughs> I'm floored. I'm shook. It's pretty tough not to laugh at Greg's obsession with puns. I've watched every episode a minimum of 20 times, but I've appreciated the insights and work that both Acorn and Greg have put into this. There's way too much to praise them on, but I'm excited to continue the journey with them through book two. That is probably, maybe my favorite five-star review so far. Oh, I love them I all. I love that so much. But this one, are you kidding me? Two, was that two puns? Yep. We are at, an average of a pun a minute you're maintaining right now. I'm, I'll put that out there. We'll see how the rest of these reviews go. Who knows? Let's see. Thank you, Cam Trout, so much for that five-star review. I'm very impressed, too, that you've seen each episode a minimum of 20 times. That That's is a impressive. lot of time to spend watching Avatar. It really is. I don't think I've seen anything like that 20 times. I think the most is probably 10 or 15 times, mm -hmm. I feel yeah. like. And that was probably Fight Club when I was a teenager, a moody teenager. <laughs> Uh -huh. That was probably it. We're really happy that we can add some value to your, yeah. your work commute and also adding to the conversation for the Avatar fandom. Yes. Our next review comes from JJ Coolcat456. Top one favorite podcast. Whoa. JJ writes, here's a question. If everyone in the main cast of Avatar The Last Airbender competed in an Olympic type competition, who would win? 
I think Ty Lee would win because, you know, she's Ty Lee. P.S. You guys are amazing. Keep up the great work. I have to agree. I can't think of anyone. I agree too. Who's yep. more of an Olympic athlete than Ty Lee at this point. I feel like May or Zula would come in as a close second just because of what we've seen them be able to accomplish in the show. Yeah. I'm thinking of the chase here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The chase and also the drill because Azula was very light on her feet. She was very acrobatic and very like nimble and deadly. But I do think when it comes down to it, it'd be Tylee. Yeah, I can't even like, I want to make an argument for Sokka, but I can't because... <laughs> Although maybe, because he's pretty good at avoiding Tylee's jabs. He's pretty nimble himself. But not good enough to win that fight. He does go that's true. go rubber armed eventually. That's, that's true. But not his head. Not his head. It's too hard. It's too hard. <laughs> I love him so much. Can't break that nut. No, you really can't. Yes. I think everyone's in agreement as Tylee. If you disagree with us, you can email us at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com and let us know mm-hmm. what you think. Or you can leave a five-star review and let us know what you think. Yep. And if you do add to the conversation, we could turn this into a new Avatar episode. Ooh, that's true. Because we could too. go into all the different kinds of Olympic events and yeah. decide and talk about who would be the winner of each. That's true. That's true. Our final review that we're reading for today, anyways, is from Greg Rosenboom. Another Greg. Oh, he sold it with two G's, though. He's fancy, not like me. <laughs> I'm just the one at the end. I have two G's in my name total. He has three. There's the two at the end. Anyways. Greg writes, great cup of tea. I had five different avatar pods lined up to see who delivered the best quality. And this pod did it. Oh, yeah, I know. Well-crafted episode recaps, not just mentioning what happened, but retelling the story. There is fun banter, but more so taking the show serious. And that reflects the nature of the show being for kids, but with deeper tones. The hosts work well with each other and bring great perspectives along for the ride. Yip, yip. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. That's so nice. That's super nice. Five different Avatar podcasts. That's a lot. That's a lot. I know there are some great ones out there. So yes. we feel very blessed to have you along for the ride for our journey. Thank we you so much. We definitely do. And that goes for everyone too that wrote in. Remember, if we didn't read your review this week, we are going to do three more next week. And then the week after that. And then the week after that. And the week after that. And the week after that. But then we're done because we'll be caught up. <laughs> Did you count that? Yes. <laughs> uh, unless there's more that come in, in which case, then there will be more after that. And then that, and then that. and then, Okay, someone stop me, please, before I keep on okay. going. Let's get into our episode. Yes. The Awakening was written by Aaron Ehas and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. And I actually want to first talk about season three in general, because as with every season, the team approaches the project and does something notable to get prepared for the content that they're about to explore. Mm-hmm. Back in season two, a lot of that prep work involved taking a trip to China where Mike and Brian explored, took pictures, talked about the different things they wanted to include in the book because so much of the Earth Nation was being explored. The Earth Kingdom was being explored. And um, the pinnacle of that was probably their unplanned trip to the architecture park where they saw all these different kinds of Asian architecture from throughout time. Mm. Well, leading up to the start of production for season three, Mike and Brian and the other writers got together for a few days for a writer's retreat. On that retreat, they filled in the gaps of the story. 
Many of the events in season three had already been mapped out by Mike and Brian from their time working on the story before their pilot had even been picked up. But now the team had to come up with the rest. I'm actually not going to go into those things that they came up during the writer's retreat because spoilers. But a few months before that prolific writer's retreat, Brian was able to fulfill a lifelong dream of visiting Iceland. Knowing he wanted to gather reference for designing the Fire Nation's volcanic landscape, he brought his camera along and ventured all across the desolate highlands and verdant coastlines of the country taking pictures. The raw, rugged, and violent landscape had the terrible beauty he had in mind for Zuko's homeland. He shot thousands of photos and pared them down into a collection that he then gave the background designers and painters. These efforts helped the team give the Fire Nation its distinct geological flavor within the world of Avatar. That's awesome. That's so cool. I love when like they go on location and there's something I think very like whimsical about that for them and that rubs off in the material itself. Totally. Because you're able to immerse yourself in this location and really like I feel like in a lot of ways, it's like stepping into a living, breathing world of imagination. Yeah. Because you're able to see the things around you and think about how they could be a little different in this world. There were a couple pictures I saw of the pictures he took in Iceland. And so there's examples of like a beachside cliff cave and how that was turned into the cave that the team lives in, in book three. I think it's in the headband, which we'll cover next week. Mm Mm-hmm. But just examples of that where he took pictures of the landscape and the falls. And I've actually been to Iceland. It is very beautiful in exactly the way that they described it. It is raw, rugged, and violent. It kind of feels like you're on an alien planet because there's no trees. There's no Hmm. flora that you're used to seeing. Everything is very volcanic and low to the ground and scrubby and mountainous. And so I actually think it's perfect that they use that as inspiration for the Fire Nation. Yeah, I've never been there. So thanks for having that. I I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day. Maybe one day. We'll see. Diving into the episode, though. Yes. Our episode starts with Aang waking up. He is disoriented and lying on a bed in what seems like a ship. He sits up and leans over the side of the bed, gingerly touching his body and finding that his torso, arms, and legs have been wrapped in strips of cloth. He looks around the room and is startled to find that this isn't just a ship, it's a Fire Nation ship. The room is lit in warm lamplight and a Fire Nation flag hangs on the wall behind his bed. Right off the bat in this scene, mm-hmm. Aang wakes up and while he isn't aware of it, we, the viewer, are painfully aware of the fact that his head is covered in hair. Yes. It's weird. It's really weird. When you first saw this, did you think that Aang had brown hair? I didn't. I, I didn't was not either. expecting his hair to be so dark brown. Yeah. Although I shouldn't be surprised because most of the cultures, including the air nomads, are based on Asian cultures. Yeah. And many of the Asian cultures tend to have dark brown to black hair. Yeah, that's true. It's just like, I don't know, it caught me off guard where I was like, well, I, I think it, I don't think it's so much the color of his hair. I think it's the fact that he just has hair in general, <laughs> that he's not like naturally bald, mm-hmm. even though we saw him shaving not too long ago. Yeah, totally. I think it's the combination of hair and tattoos because yeah. so far we have seen no air nomad with tattoos who also has hair. It's like, I think it was jarring for me because it's like his tattoo gets cut off by a hairline. Yeah. And it feels wrong because it should continue the flow around his body and be visible. 
Yeah. 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 And it's like from a character design perspective too, I feel like they weren't anticipating when they designed Aang to have hair at all. So it just feels Mm -hmm. like they're like, oh, he, we have to show that it's been a while. How do we do that? Give him hair. But oh, wait, we didn't design this character to have hair, period. I wonder what those conversations around his hairline were like. Yeah. Do we give him a widow's peak? What's <laughs> what's the angle here? Should it like bend in this area? Well, yeah. And if they make his hair too long, A, it won't be. Belie- it's not very believable now because we'll find out how mm-hmm. long he's been out. But B, it'll be less believable and you won't see the arrow at all. And you still need to see that to know yeah. it's him. <laughs> yep. Anyways. It's going to continue to grow from here. We're going to have a weird relationship with Aang's hair in this season. Yes. Aang leaves the room and stumbles down the hall, using his glider as a crutch. He encounters two people and, believing them to be Fire Nation soldiers, bends a blast of air at them and flees to the deck. He falls after climbing the stairs and comes face to face with two more soldiers and... Momo? Twinkle Toes, that's got to be you, says a familiar voice. Toph and Katara run over to him and Katara embraces her friend. Sokka joins them, dressed in full Fire Nation garb, and the surprise proves to be too much for the young airbender. He passes out in Katara's arms. What I really like about Aang leaving the room and seeing those soldiers is right away, us as the viewers, we know that something's not quite right here based off of the size of the two soldiers that he encounters. Because we've seen nothing but uniform-sized Fire Nation soldiers at this point. Yep. The size and shape is different. Yes, it's very he's they're he's very large and the other one's very small. I like that little bit of like peppering in that detail. Also the fact that he's in a room without restraints, yep. without a guard. Yeah, oh, that's true. He doesn't seem to be a captive and he's able to just leave the room. So I think that tips us off as the viewer that something's going on here. Something tricky is happening. Yes, for sure. But Aang is not in his right mind and doesn't notice yet. Yeah. So jumping into some more world building stuff, Mm -hmm. this ship we have seen before. It is called the Fire Nation Cruiser, and it's a type of formidable steam-powered warship that makes up the bulk of the Fire Nation Navy. One of these ships was immobilized by waterbenders during the Southern Water Tribe raids and became the shipwreck at the South Pole that Aang and Katara go to visit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The one with lots of booby traps. Yes. Booby traps. <laughs> the Fire Nation cruiser is an example of the Fire Nation's advanced technology in industry. Each cruiser is fueled by the combustion of coal, the exhaust of which comes out of two smokestacks, which is also what gives it that very unique silhouette. Mm. The power provided by the coal in turn rotates propellers under the stern of the ship, allowing for propulsion not dependent on winds or currents which is what the water tribe relies on. Yeah. It's interesting how like the water tribe depends on water and like the actual elements for them to move. Mm-hmm. And the fire nation is like, no, nope, screw it. Let's just invent something that will just, you know, make us not have to worry about that and power through it. Yeah. The difference in cultures in that way is super interesting where yeah. one is more tribal and one is more industrial. I love that detail. Me too. Somewhere on the seas, there was another fire nation ship this one carrying a certain Fire Nation prince that we know and love. Zuko stands at the side of the ship, staring out at the sea. May approaches and asks if he's cold, and he replies that he's got a lot on his mind. He explains that his thoughts are on home, and the fact that it's been three years since he's been there. He wonders what's changed, and how he's changed. May yawns and says, 
I just asked if you were cold. I didn't ask for your whole life story. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> she smirks and embraces him, pulling his face towards hers. Stop worrying, she says, and they share a kiss. Ooh, no one tells Azula. <laughs> this is actually why I ship May and Zuko. Yeah. I feel like they have a similar kind of base personality, yep. slightly emo, slightly yep. grumpy, but May balances Zuko out because where she's lighthearted, he's serious. Yeah. She's also, she's had healthy relationships with other people as well. You could argue yeah. that her parents aren't like the most warm and embraceive, but I would say that like her and Ty Lee's relationship is like very healthy and very like rooted in in good vibes where Zuko doesn't really have that. The only really good relationship he has at this point, besides May, I was I should say before May, was Iroh. But that was kind of like something he had to come to grips with and he had to like figure out for himself. It wasn't like mm -hmm. a friendship, right? It's a almost a father-son dynamic where, you know what? Zuko doesn't have friends. Yeah, he doesn't have relationships, like yeah. romantic relationships either. Yeah, so it's just very interesting to see where Zuko is lacking. May makes up for it. Yep, totally. Yeah. yeah. And I will acknowledge the Zutara shippers. I understand that Katara would be that nurturing, empathetic, emotional support to Zuko. But I actually think that May's straightforward, almost abrasive quality is what he needs sometimes. I agree. To kind of snap him out of things and to get him back on track. Yeah. It also helps that she is apparently not afraid of Azula as much as we thought. Oh, yeah. Because if she was, she probably wouldn't be dating her brother. Nope. That's a subtle little characterization nugget right there. It's like, yeah. she is just, I like this boy. Yep. I'm going to date him. Yep. He's my boyfriend now. He makes me happy. <laughs> Screw you, Azula. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back on the commandeered ship, Katara and Aang talk about what's happened since he's been asleep. Aang is shocked to hear how long he's been out and is even more shocked to realize he has a whole head of hair. <laughs> as were we, Aang, as were we. <laughs> yes. Hakoda comes up and introduces himself to Aang, which makes Katara uncharacteristically annoyed. After asking her dad to leave them alone, Katara and Aang go below deck for a healing session. This was one of those things where it didn't quite occur to me that she could be mad at her father for leaving. Yeah, me neither. So I was watching this and Everyone knows I've only seen the series in its entirety once. So I remember the bigger moments like Toph's first appearance and metal bending and, you know, the mm -hmm. first couple episodes here and there. But these first two episodes here, I didn't remember from season three. So when I'm watching this and she's like, yeah, dad, beat it. She didn't say that. That's her tone. I was like, whoa, it's kind of aggressive there. Yeah. And I was like, was that like a misdelivery? Like, what, what was that? And then later we find out it wasn't. But like. It never just dawned on me that while Sokka is completely fine with his father and what he did, his sister is not. Mm -hmm. And she feels abandoned by him, which yeah. we really don't find out until later in the episode. But I thought even with this, it was a realistic delivery to have a teenage character miss their absent father with all their heart. And then finally, when he's there to shift into feeling resentful and suffocated even. Yeah. by him once he's around again. So I like the setup here because it seems believable, but the delivery of the reason why she's feeling like that later in the episode is just like, oh my God, just an emotional punch in the face. Yeah, yeah. Also that whole thing where he's like, I'm, hey, I'm Hakoda. And she's like, he knows dad. I called you dad in front of him, dad. 
I know. Jeez. It's like, whoa, chill out, Katara. But Aang is like, nice to meet you, Mr. Hakoda. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them are like just going along with it. It's so good. As Katara is working on Aang's back with healing water, Aang has a flashback to the battle in the Crystal Caves under Ba Sing Se. Katara comments that she can feel a lot of energy twisted up in the area she's working and attempts to pull the energy out from his back. The movement triggers a violent memory and Aang remembers that he went down. He wasn't just hurt, he was gone, and Katara brought him back. Katara tells Aang that she used the spirit water from the North Pole to heal him, but isn't sure exactly what she did. In the Fire Nation capital on the balcony of the Royal Palace, Lo and Lee present Princess Azula and Prince Zuko to the Fire Nation citizens below. They recount how Azula took on a clever disguise to infiltrate the capital, and how she and Zuko faced and defeated the Avatar together. The Earth Kingdom fell, the walls were brought down, and the Fire Nation secured their victory over Ba Sing Se. Mm-hmm. This is a really impactful moment because as they're speaking, first of all, their delivery is like super intimidating and like, oh my God, they're shouting this from the top of a tower in this oceanside cliff city with like hundreds of people below them. And they're like recounting the acts of the prince and princess with like so much pomp and circumstance. But also as they're talking, we see flashbacks to the city of Ba Sing Se and all of these things happening. Yeah. And in those flashbacks or montage, if you will, we see a bunch of familiar faces, which I was super excited about. I was Mm -hmm. bummed we didn't see one face. But what we did see is Ying and Tan and their baby Hope from the Serpent's Mm -hmm. Pass episode. And we also see Jin and Pao that were both in Pao's tea shop. Yeah. Jin, who went on a date with Zuko in the Tales of Ba Sing Se. Yes. And Pao, the owner of the first tea shop that Uncle and Zuko worked in. Yes. I was really disappointed. I can't remember his name right now. But remember, remember the nosy neighbor that lived across from them in Ba Sing Se from Team Avatar? <laughs> I really yes. was hoping we'd see him again, but we don't. Especially because we learned from the director's commentary that that character is supposed to have a much larger presence in the series, but it just got cut. Oh, that would have been so fun if they did. Yeah. But oh, I mean, you know, can't be mad about seeing five other characters reappear in the world to really kind of establish that this is real. This is happening. These characters that you know and love or maybe knew and didn't like so much are being affected by these decisions that were made by Zuko. Mm -hmm. By the way, the neighbor's name is Pong. Pong. That's right. That's right. I always want to call Lo and Lee Ping and Pong. I don't know why. I know. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's just always in my head. But there were two twin earthbenders in the town that they visit in the fortune teller named Poi and Ping. But only one of them was an earthbender, right? Only one of them was. So maybe that's who you're remembering. Maybe. Yeah. My brain just things, names get all jumbled up sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was Ping, Pong, Poi, Ping. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I want to talk about here the Tai Lee. Yes. Because in this flashback, we see the Dai Li taking down a portion of the wall of Ba Sing Se, which allows the Fire Nation troops to come in. I was thinking about this, and as we learned throughout book two, the Dai Li are the protectors of the cultural heritage of Ba Sing Se. And as we saw in our last episode on Escape from the Spirit World, Kyoshi is the one who trained them to be the protectors of the cultural heritage. So I'm sitting here watching this thinking, why did the Dai Li basically turn their backs on protecting the cultural heritage and allow the Fire Nation to invade. 
Well, after some thinking about it, I think this is what happened. Mm. With the Dai Li being the elite police force in Ba Sing Se, their main role was to capture, interrogate, and imprison political dissidents, along with keeping any talk of the war out of the city. They became corrupt over time, and we saw this through their serving Long Fang over the Earth King. And then Azula shows up. Azula sways their loyalty to her. And the Dai Li agents came to see that the Fire Nation princess was a more effective leader. So I think what happened is they realized that they would lose to the Fire Nation, yeah. but that by serving Azula, they could still retain much of their power. Yes. So the choice that they made effectively kept them on the winning side of the war, because really that is what they're most focused on is retaining power and control over the city. And they can't do that if they turn against the invaders. Yes, which is hilarious because why were the Dai Li created? Mm-hmm. To protect the city. To, to protect, protect the city, their heritage, the <laughs> their way of life, their culture. And yep. what did they do? Sell it all out just for victory. New, new Ozai. Welcome in <laughs> to new, new Ozai. You're all just going to be Fire Nation now. No more Earth Kingdom stuff. Sorry. Bossing what? Bossing what? Huh? Bossing who's, what? Who's singing? Where? Oh my God, that's great. Oh yep, my God. Exactly. The Tylee are just terrible. <laughs> I dislike <laughs> them so much. I know. Another thing I want to talk about is where Lo and Lee are addressing the people. I learned that the Royal Plaza is a long forum located in the harbor just below the Fire Nation capital. This is where, if you see a picture of it, it's very, it looks like an island, which I know it is an island, but yeah. it has the shape of the island, the mountainous kind of cliffy surroundings of the landscape. And this is where the Fire Nation royalty held inspiring rallies for the people of the Fire Nation. It is a powerful setting that represents the dominance of the Fire Nation and serves as the main line of defense for the capital. Lined with numerous battlements and varied weapons, the Royal Plaza is one of the most heavily guarded places in the Fire Nation. Its strategic location among the cliffs makes it nearly impossible for invaders to find any other way around it without heading miles off course. Which actually reminds me of the Northern Water Tribe because we talked mm. in book one about how its placement on the edge of the ocean tucked into the cliffs made it incredibly defensible because people would have to travel miles through the arctic tundra to get yeah. to them isn't that funny how that works they see one what city is older you think or which which place is older so i wonder who got the idea from who i think it's a common idea i don't remember much from school it's yeah. been a while yeah. but what i do remember is in like third grade we learned about the middle ages and how castles were oftentimes built into cliffs or on top of cliffs i mean right. think of um Think of the Red Keep in sure, sure, yeah. Game of Thrones. You know, one of the reasons it was so protected is because it's location on the cliffs and you couldn't really get to it. I think it's just a common thing that they probably took from history is find the most defensible position in the landscape and build your castle there. It's half built for you. Just build the rest. Exactly. Yeah. Team Avatar shares a meal together while Sokka brings Aang up to speed on what's happened since he got hurt in Ba Sing Se. They flew back to Chameleon Bay, where they joined Hakoda and the other Water Tribe men. The Earth King set off with Bosco to travel the Earth Kingdom in disguise. And when the bay was overrun with Fire Nation ships, the group captured a ship of their own and have been traveling west ever since. 
Their next step is to launch a smaller invasion of friends and allies from around the Earth Kingdom on the day of the eclipse. And because the world thinks Aang is dead, they have an advantage. Upon hearing this, Aang is dismayed by this news and isn't convinced that it's a good thing, even if it means the Fire Nation won't be hunting him or expecting him on the day of the invasion. Before they can say anything else, another Fire Nation ship signals them as it approaches. Aang is ready to leap into action, but is obviously too injured to do anything. Katara convinces him to hide with the others. This is the last time that we see the Earth King and Bosco. It is. He just jumps on Bosco and rides off into the sunset. (laughs) (laughs) So long and farewell, dear Earth King. I hope you make it because, you know, in that last scene, we see he's dressed in rags. He has one shoe on. He's so happy, though. He is happy. I hope that his his uplifted spirits and his positivity will take him far through the world. Hopefully he won't starve to death in the wilderness. I don't want to be negative Nancy on this one, but I don't think he makes it very far. (laughs) I just feel like... That was my thought, too. He's just like, this will be great. He's super sheltered. There's not always going to be a song in family available to feed you roast duck and to put salve on your rash. Not everyone's as nice as that. That's a good call out too. Zuko and Iroh were not able to handle it too well at first either. And they are like fierce warriors. Mm-hmm. Never mind a pampered king who's lived in shelter his entire life. Who never even saw his city until yeah. he left with Team Avatar to go investigate Lake Laogai. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what if though? What if he becomes an assistant to the cabbage merchant? And they go <gasps> off and have adventures together. I need this show. I need it. Right now. It. Right now, please. Avatar Studios. I, head cannon. There we go. <laughs> head cannon. That is, oh my God. No, wait. That would be beautiful because we find out that the cabbage merchant goes on to establish Cabbage Corps yeah. in Cora. That's right. So we know the cabbage merchant doesn't, even though the last time we saw him, he's like, screw this. I'm going to give up on my dream. I'm going to move on. This isn't working. What if the Earth King encounters the cabbage merchant and inspires him to pick up his dream again? And they travel and go on adventures. And the Earth King plays a huge part in the cabbage merchant. Yes. Turning his business into the industry that it becomes. And also having the protection of a bear around his cabbages. Ah! Boom. I'm sold. I'm so excited. (laughs) I want this show now. If yes. anyone out there wants to do fan art of this or is so inspired and they want to do a fan fiction, we wholeheartedly support you. Yes. We would love to see it. Love it. Anyway, getting back to our canon story, mm-hmm. the Fire Nation ship pulls up and the ship's officer boards and questions the group where they're headed. All Western fleet ships are supposed to be moving towards Ba Sing Se to support the occupation. Hakoda and Bato smoothly lie and say they're from the Eastern Fleet and have been tasked with delivering cargo. The Water Tribe men continue to cover by going along with whatever the officer says, including the fact that General Chan gave them the orders, until one of the officer's soldiers tells him that General Chan, the leader of the Eastern Fleet, has been on Ember Island for the past two months and couldn't have given the orders he supposedly did. The Fire Nation officer infers that this ship must have been captured and plans to sink it after they depart. Toph hears this and Team Avatar leaps into action. Toph metal bends the ramp out from under the visiting Fire Nation soldiers, dumping them into the waters beneath them. 
and Katara waterbends the other ship away in order for them to escape. There are not a lot of voice acting notes in this episode. There's one specifically, and this is it. The Fire Navy officer, while not technically credited as so, I am 95% sure that it is Mark Hamill. I am so sure. He's credited not only as the Fire Lord in this, he's not named specifically yet in this episode. It it is subsequently Mm -hmm. changed after this to be Fire Lord Ozai, but he is also credited with additional voices in this episode. And I watched this scene maybe four or five times with my eyes closed. And I go back and forth a little bit, but I'm like confident that if I walked up to Mark Hamill and I was like, this was you, he would say... I don't remember, kid. It was like 14 years ago. (laughs) But But then he'd probably be like, probably. Probably, yeah. (laughs) Maybe. There's a couple deliveries like at the end too where he was like whispering and he like, like, oh, nobody ever tells me these things where it sounded very Mark Hamill-esque. So. Oh my gosh. I'm pretty sure it's him. I love it. Yeah. I have to note that I feel like this was such a leap of logic. They go from General Chan gave the orders to General Chan's on vacation to the ship is captured. It's like they couldn't have received General Chan's orders through a messenger hawk or by proxy or... No, because... So here, here is this, though. Word travels fast in the world of Avatar. And we know this from book one. I don't remember the episode, but when Zhao gets promoted. The Blue Spirit. The Blue Spirit. It's like immediately he gets promoted and everyone yeah. knows about it. So the Fire Nation, probably part of why they're really good at conquering is their communication is probably peak right now. Hmm. Almost as good as, let's say, like 1980s real world. Like I would say like it's really solid foundation. At the same time, I'm just thinking like, you know how there's letterhead from the office of. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel like that could be a possibility before jumping to the conclusion that a general's on vacation, therefore he couldn't have given the orders. Therefore, this ship has to have been captured. Like I, I feel like orders generally go out from the general and they get passed down through the different commanding officers in the the navy, yeah, the Royal Navy, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I see what they're trying to do. Yeah. It's a small moment where they ask you to suspend your disbelief. So whatever. Well, think about it this way too, to kind of maybe help remedy a little, little bit of this. A, this is probably not the first time this has happened. As much as I would love to credit Sokka's idea as being original the first time, it probably isn't. But B, do you think Fire Lord Ozai would be okay with them being like, well, maybe this is captured, but we don't know, so we're just going to leave it? Or destroying it, killing everyone on board and saying, well, you know, better safe than sorry. I thought they were the enemy. (laughs) I think he'd be more okay with the latter. I mean, as Fire Lord Ozai, he's pretty ruthless. Yeah, that ruthlessness is what carries through to all of the men that he picks. Okay, I'll take it. All right. (laughs) I, too, also think it's a leap of logic, by the way. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Okay, good. No, that's a good devil's advocate argument. Yeah. In the royal palace, Zuko sits next to the turtle duck pond that he used to frequent with his mother. He feeds the turtle ducks bits of bread until Azula comes up to him. Her presence scares the turtle ducks away. She asks Zuko why he seems down. She teasingly asks if May has gotten dim already, but then notes with a smirk that May has actually been in a strangely good mood lately. Zuko tells her that he hasn't seen their father yet, and he's nervous that his father won't be pleased because he didn't capture the Avatar. 
Who cares? The Avatar is dead. Unless you think he somehow miraculously survived, says Azula. Zuko flashes back to what Katara said in the caverns about having a vial of water from the spirit oasis and that she's been saving it for something important. No, there's no way he could have survived, he tells his sister. He keeps a straight face as he says this, but Azula seems to see something in his expression. What will she do about it? Time will tell. Mm -hmm. I just want to point out that the fact that the turtle ducks just like scurry away as soon as Azula. (laughs) That for me tells me those are the same family of turtle ducks from when they were kids. Yep. And she threw a giant rock at, or he threw a rock at them, but it was because it's what Azula did. Mm -hmm. Azula habitually did that. Yeah. And if it isn't, well, I like that you said turtle duck family, because I like to think because it's been so many years, the mama turtle duck in this scene is one of the babies grown up with her own ducklings. Yes. And I actually think that probably Azula just keeps on doing this too. I feel like she gets bored, just Mm -hmm. chucks rocks at the poor things. (laughs) I think so too. Yep. Uh, Makes me so sad. Okay. Sorry. Anyways. Yeah. Back on the seas, Team Avatar's commandeered ship is under attack. The other Fire Nation ship is in hot pursuit and launches flaming rocks at them with a trebuchet. Toph defends against the rocks with rocks of her own that she uses to intercept the oncoming fireballs. Aang is in torment while he's hiding with Sokka because he can't help his friends or show his face. The other ship harpoons their hull and water begins pouring into the lower decks. Katara ices over the hull and gives them some cover using great clouds of water vapor. But it's not enough. The ship comes alongside them and launches fireballs at close range. When they think things can't get any worse, an Unagi bursts out of the ocean. It's about to attack, but is struck with a fireball. It turns its attention to the Fire Nation ship and wraps itself around it, effectively halting their progress and giving Team Avatar a chance to escape. I like how they're like, oh yeah, we just passed the Serpent's Pass and they kind of leave it at that for a couple minutes Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it shows back up and it's like, hey, buddy. (laughs) Love that continuity. Yes. (laughs) I also just want to point out really quickly that this fight for me had very strong Return of the Jedi vibes. Oh, yeah? Like, so think about it this way. At the end of Empire, Han Solo goes in the Carbonite and he wakes up and all of a sudden Luke is like a super powerful Jedi and Leia is like just as cunning as she's been and maybe even more so. And so like time has passed for everyone else. But Han, the same thing has happened here. Aang's been out for three weeks. Think about all the progress they made day to day in their bending abilities. Now, mm-hmm. like, multiply that by 21 days, right? Like, it's just been going absolutely crazy for them. So seeing Toph really get this metal bending down and be able to channel it in such a precise way. Because last yeah. time we saw her use it, she was doing it just with her bare hands and ripping through metal, essentially. Mm-hmm. And now she can kind of do those fissures through the metal. We see Katara really, like, channel all of this water bending to a much larger degree and be able to really control it. So, like. Aang must be just bewildered by all of this change at this point and maybe feeling, and feeling like a little so left out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it's a testament to how much these kids have grown and how fast they've grown just since the beginning of the series. We talked about this before. Yeah. How we see their progression, we see their development as characters, but also as benders. And so, yes, three weeks away from the story, who knows how much they've been able to accomplish. We really yeah. see that kind of a, uh, that peek out here in this scene and see how they how they handle this attack. 
too much neutral jing for Aang is what happens. Too much. Too, <laughs> too much. much neutral jing makes yeah. you feel left out. <laughs> yep. I know that you also appreciated Sokka's lines here, right? The, wait, which lines? The universe just loves proving oh, me yeah. wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, I do. And then, thanks, the universe. Yes, thanks, the universe. <laughs> Sokka is just in rare form in this episode, too, because he is just as clueless to other people's feelings in the beginning where mm-hmm. he's like, you're dead. Isn't that great? <laughs> just like, <laughs> no, yep. no, it's not. But yeah, Sokka has just been like, he's been growing a lot to his, I guess, battle mind or whatever you want to call it. Like his, his strategy mind has just grown a lot. And I think a lot of that is being reconnected with his father. Yeah, I'd like to think that a lot of the way Sokka acts in this episode is because of him being reunited with his dad. Yeah, yeah. Later that day, our heroes dock their ship at a port and decide to head into town for some dinner. Toph, Katara, and Sokka come to fetch Aang from his room and give him a cloth headband to cover his arrow so he can come with them. Aang refuses to wear the headband, saying he's not going out if he can't wear his arrow proudly. Katara tells the others to go ahead of them and stays behind to talk to Aang. I think I understand why being a secret bothers you so much, she says. You don't want people to think you failed. Aang insists that he did fail because he was embossing Say and let it fall into Fire Nation hands. When Katara brings up their invasion plans, Aang rips the Fire Nation flag off of the wall in anger and tells her he doesn't want anyone else to risk their lives to fix his mistakes. He's always known he would have to face the Fire Lord, but now he knows he needs to do it alone. He tells Katara to leave. When she asks him if he needs anything, Aang replies, I need to redeem myself. I need my honor back. Mm. My honor! My honor! It's, it's, <laughs> it's so like weird. It's that. a little trippy, right? To hear him say that. Yeah, to hear the word specifically honor coming out of Aang's mouth, but also my like honor. the next scene, it literally just goes right to Zuko, who in his mind, has gotten his honor back, but it's not mm-hmm. sitting well with him. Yep. It's so super just, intentional. Yes. Great storyboarding yes. and great storytelling to have Aang say the words that Zuko used to say at the exact moment Zuko thinks he has regained his own honor. Yeah. What a flip. All Aang needs to say now is the Avatar. And then he's just <laughs> Zuko. Yep, exactly. But you're right, the scene shifts from Aang's face to Zuko's as he walks to the throne room to see his father. The prince pauses before the entrance and takes a calming breath. He enters the throne room and bows before his father, who sits on the throne behind a wall of flame. The Fire Lord says, You've been away a long time. I see the weight of your travels has changed you. You have redeemed yourself, my son. He descends his throne and comes to stand before Zuko. When Zuko looks up, he doesn't see the shadowy figure from his nightmares, but a man of flesh and blood, his father, before him. And what a beautiful, handsome man Ozai is. He's so pretty. I just oh don't like it. I, it's so like, Iroh is supposed to be his brother, but looks like he could be his father. <laughs> I know. Iroh has aged a lot more than Fire Lord Ozai. Yes. Ozai has that like pretty dangerous vibe going on yeah. where it's like something really, really pretty could hurt you. It's like a shiny dagger can slice your finger off yep. because you don't know any better kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And actually this moment is super important. And Mike had this to say of Ozai's face reveal. It's a symbolic moment where Zuko finally sees his father for who he truly is. 
not a mysterious, frightening figure hidden in shadow, but a flesh and blood man similar in appearance to himself. But why has he got to be so pretty? Because, <laughs> you know, Zuko's kind of a looker. Yeah, it's just Scar weird. and all. It's just weird. Azula, too. Yeah. Well, I know Ozai is the younger brother of Iroh, so there's probably, I don't know, 10 years difference between them or something like that. I would like say that. there's at least, based on looks, a 15-year difference. I would go, yeah, I would say 15 seems Gotta more reasonable, that. too. Which, yeah. actually, if you kind of think about it this way, if you think about Azulon, and he was, like, pretty old right before he died. Mm-hmm. And Ozai wasn't really that old. So I would, I would gather this. Where I'm going, I'm taking the long road to say this. I bet <laughs> you that Azulon married, got sick of his wife. She was too old. She seems to me like he'd be pretty shallow that way. Gets rid of her, gets a new wife. She gives him a new kid. So maybe they're half brothers, maybe. It's funny you say that. Because yeah. there's a lot of family drama that we're going to find out about okay. in this season. Okay. That's just what I'm picking up. Yeah. Maybe not the two wives thing, but okay. there is a lot that goes on in this family that we're going to find out. Fair enough. I can't wait to find that out, though. Okay. So that's yeah. just like, that's just the age difference. It will always bother me. I remembered it bothered me after the first go around. It's still mm-hmm. bothering me now. And it's just always going to be the case. It's just weird character design. Yeah. I think, though, it has this impact to it where when you finally see Ozai after two seasons of building him up as this ferocious, heartless, almost vicious leader to finally see him and see him look like a completely normal person who is related to Zuko. It like, I think it's supposed to be a complicated moment because you're supposed to see the human in the place of the monster and wonder how the two are correlated. I'm just saying a couple bags under the eyes, maybe. You just want him to be ugly? No, I just want him to look a little older. I don't want him to look <laughs> like he's in his 20s when his brother looks like he's in his 60s. Okay, whatever. <laughs> like a couple bags or something. I don't know. A couple moles with hair sticking out of them. Crow's feet. Missing widow's some teeth, peak. maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. When Katara returns to the ship with dinner for Aang, she finds his room empty. Realizing what this must mean, she drops the tray and rushes to find the others. She finds her father and Bato talking on an upper deck. Bato, seeing her tears, leaves them to talk. Katara tells her father that Aang left. He took his glider and just disappeared because he has this ridiculous notion that he has to save the world alone. Maybe that's his way of being brave, says Hakoda. It's not brave, Katara replies. It's selfish and stupid. We could be helping him, and I know the world needs him, but doesn't he know how much we need him too? How can he just leave us behind? It becomes clear to Hakoda that she's talking about him too. When he says as much, Katara breaks down even more. She tells him that even with Grand Grand, they were lost without him. Hakoda embraces her. She goes on saying, I understand why you left. I really do. And I know that you had to go. So why do I still feel this way? I'm so sad and angry and hurt. Yeah. At this point where Katara lashes out her father out, at this point I was like, oh, you have residual feelings about him leaving, which is interesting because they give you the impression that Hakoda was closer to Sokka than he was Katara. Yeah. So the fact that his absence affected his daughter so much probably caught him off guard too. 
because he probably thought he was in the clear <laughs> with, with Zaka's like, Dad, I love you. You're back. Yeah. I think as soon as Katara got moody, he was probably like, oh boy, there's some rough yeah. waters happening over there. I'm surprised he didn't just like Homer Simpson vanish into bushes behind him and then just never come back. <laughs> like, ah, yeah. Go. I really love how realistic this scene is. And I, I mentioned it before at the start when we first saw how kind of grumpy and resentful Katara is. It's super realistic for someone to have feelings that they don't understand and to experience those feelings coming to the surface in a surprising way. So first of all, that's great. Second of all, there is a really huge impact that fathers play on the lives of their daughters. Speaking of someone who lost her dad very, very young in life, it profoundly changed me as a person. I have never been the same because having the influence of a father in your life is priceless, really. Yeah. yeah. So I like that they showed this. And I like how, again, with the two siblings, one sibling acts one way, dad, you're back. I love you. And then the other sibling has to work through some stuff to be able to come to terms with her dad being back in her life. She's also a little bit younger than Sokka too. So they have a year in between them, which, you know, when you're a teenager, you grow super fast. That's true. That could be all the difference between being able to cope with something like that and maybe mm-hmm. having more difficulty with it. Or maybe it's just, a, I want to say symptom. It's just like a, a thing about their different personalities where yep. Sokka, while, well, you and gender too. Yeah. Well, while Sokka can be sensitive about some things, he's wildly not at times. Where like things mm-hmm. will bother him, but then also other things that probably should bother him don't. He's able to cope with that a lot better. Where Katara is very maternal and nurturing and takes a lot of that into consideration. And yeah, takes she's a lot more of things in pretty tune difficult. with her feelings. Yeah. And Sokka just likes to make plans. <laughs> yep. Yep. Anyway, the scene shifts from Hakoda telling his daughter how much he missed his children while he was away to Zuko's father telling him how proud he is of his son. I am proud because you and your sister conquered Ba Sing Se. I am proud because when your loyalty was tested by your treacherous uncle, you did the right thing and captured the traitor. And I am proudest of all of your most legendary accomplishment. You slayed the Avatar. Azula told me everything. She said she was amazed and impressed with your power and ferocity at the moment of truth. Zuko listens to his father saying the words he's always wished to hear, but they bring him no joy. Notice he says, your uncle and not my brother. Uh Uh-huh. Talk about some distance. Yep. And doesn't mention him by name at all. Yep. It's like effectively saying that woman, that man. Yes. It creates so much emotional distance between you and them. Yeah. It's crazy. That's a great catch. Yep. Also, this is an episode that reminds me just how expertly written this show is. Mm -hmm. Every moment is necessary and important. Every line of dialogue sets up and executes a theme or emotion or even plot. I kind of, I was watching this and feeling like this episode especially, but just this show in general is kind of like a sauce reduction. Each episode is a concentration of ideas and symbols and themes and characterization that has been simmered down for hours into something short and powerful. The way this episode plays with what it means to lose and regain one's honor, the complexity of paternal relationships, failure, and its psychological impacts on self-worth, etc., like These are some huge themes and we crammed all of this into a 20 minute episode. It's absolutely wild. 
It's so well done. And it's supposed to be like, quote unquote, a children's show too. So it's like, so what they're essentially doing with this is they're introducing these themes to a much younger audience that may be feeling some of these and not knowing it, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. That's something that I've studied briefly before the effects of different themes and subjects in children's literature and just the concept of how kids understand so much more than adults think they do. Yeah. And that sometimes it's important to allow them a safe place to explore those ideas so they can wrap their brains around them and figure out how they feel about them. And I think Avatar does this in a lot of major ways, introducing things like genocide, war, (laughs) an unloving parent. Yeah. The loss of a parent. It's like these are huge things that happen in real life and they happen to us as well as the characters. So, you know, it's something important to touch on. We shift scenes, though, and find Aang flying with his glider over the ocean under a turbulent, stormy sky. He is still weakened, but determined to accomplish his goal without endangering his friends. Coming to a Fire Nation blockade, he dives under it and encounters a piece of driftwood on the other side. After catching his breath, he turns the piece of driftwood into a windsurfer with his glider and sets out over the waves. The sky opens up and it begins to storm. The winds pick up and the rough seas eventually knock him over into the water. Something that struck me here is it really shows what kind of state of mind Aang is in right now. Because he left without a second thought for Momo or Appa. Ooh, good call out. Wow. He just up and left. What a jerk. I know. Momo's done nothing but be by your side this entire time. Momo probably would have went with him if he had just brought him. That's what I'm saying. Like, if anything, whenever Aang goes on a solo thing, usually Momo comes with him because Momo is small and compact and mobile. But yeah, he just left. So I feel like That's a great way to illustrate how frustrated he is with his circumstances and how determined to not endanger his friend he is. He just left without saying goodbye and didn't seem to spare a thought for what he was leaving behind. I wonder if he also feels kind of betrayed by everyone based off of this plan. Like they moved on without him? Well, they're trying to like hide who he is. Yeah. So like there could be some sort of like, you know, negative connotation in Aang's mind with this plan being more about hiding that he's the avatar and distracting him from his actual mission, which they've never done so far. So far, it's always been about his mission to be the avatar and save the world and end the war and stuff like that. This is the first time that they've been like, well, just stop being so much yourself, which is <laughs> it shows how much everyone has grown up in such a short amount of time to mm-hmm. where like when you're a kid, you're always like, I'm never going to change. I'm going to be like the best forever. And this is how things are going to be. And then as you go through, you start to like change a little about yourself. And I think it, there are studies that say like everyone changes every seven years almost completely anyways. Yeah. But like that kind of happens. And all of a sudden you're unrecognizable to like who you were as a child. And now this whole idea of being like, just calm down, hide. We have the element of a surprise in our hands. The only real way we can really win at this point is so different because Aang didn't grow in those three weeks. He was sleeping. Mm-hmm. So there's that disconnect. There's that feeling of abandonment. There's the fact that Momo and Appa appear to be going along with it. Maybe he feels that they're in on it and he's just needs to get out. A lot of Aang's character too has been focused on coming to terms and accepting his role as the Avatar because that yeah. was what he ran away from before he was frozen in the iceberg. So 
when you think about it, we've spent wow. two seasons him accepting his role as the avatar. And then he's told to hide that all. Let the world believe that you failed. Let the world believe that you died a second time and you didn't save or help them. You know, for an air nomad, he has a re- he has real difficulty accepting new ideas and moving on. <laughs> Going with the flow. Going with the flow. He just like, <laughs> yep. it takes him a long time. And if he doesn't like it, he just diffs out. He's just like, I'm yeah. out. Of, I, I can't handle this. I'm out of here. See you later. And always during a storm. <laughs> True. There's always a storm when always he has this dramatic exit. Yep. Yeah. You think he just waits for a storm and goes, okay, now's the time for my dramatic exit and storms off. His like airbender senses a tingle, his hair stand up and he's like, there's a storm coming. Cue emotions. <laughs> well, you, you can't storm off if there's no storm. <laughs> oh, clearly. So add another pun to the tally. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I think that, um, I mean, the fact that we just talked about Aang's character for the last, what, two or three minutes yeah. shows just how strong of a character he is because oh, sure. we were able to infer so much about his motivation just from who we have come to believe him to be yeah. after yeah. all this time. In the Fire Nation capital, Zuko wakes his sister and confronts her about what she told their father. Why did you tell father that I was the one who killed the Avatar? Azula replies that he seemed so worried about how father would treat him because he hadn't captured the Avatar. She figured if she gave him all the credit, he'd have nothing to worry about. Call it a generous gesture, she says as she climbs out of bed in her night robe. I wanted to thank you for your help and I was happy to share the glory. Zuko calls her a liar and says she must have another motive for doing this. Azula casually dismisses his worries and, like a cat with a mouse, says, What could I possibly gain by letting you get all the glory for defeating the Avatar? Unless, somehow, the Avatar was actually alive. All that glory would suddenly turn to shame and foolishness. But as you said yourself, that's impossible. She tells him goodnight and smiles to herself as Zuko leaves the room, stunned and uneasy. Two things. Number one, well played, Azula. <laughs> well played. She doesn't need any more glory. She's already her father's favorite. So she has literally uh-huh. nothing to gain by taking credit for that. Number two, listener, if your first cartoon crush was Azula in this scene, <laughs> understandable. <laughs> oh my God. She is so calculating. I yes. love, hate her so much. Yeah. And like, I still just dislike her, but like, I can see the the cunning in her plans mm-hmm. now. Like, now you know what you're kind of getting into with her. I can see why you love Avatar Kirk so much, but he's yeah. not my favorite. That's fair. So, That's fair. To each know. their own. Yeah. Same Absolutely. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just the fact that she told Ozai that Zuko killed the Avatar in order to flush the truth out of him. That's just so good. She knows he's lying. Yep. She somehow reads him so well, even though to us, watching that scene by the turtle duck pond, he didn't give away anything on his face, not even like an eyebrow twitch, but she somehow knew. He lingered. That's how she knew. Okay. His silence probably is what yeah. clued her in. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise he probably would have just like yelled and stormed off about his honor or something like that. And that would have been uh-huh. it. But he like kind of thought about it for a minute. He's like, no, you're crazy. Yep. There's also something so uncomfortably unsettling and desperate Yeah, with how he knows she's up to something. Yep. He tells her, you're lying. You're saying this for a reason. I just don't know what that is yet. Yeah, That is such a beautiful way of illustrating their dynamic because yep. Azula is always five steps ahead of Zuko and he knows it 
but he doesn't know what to do about it. Right. And then she tells him her plan mm-hmm. and he still can't do anything about it. It's yep. too late at that point. And she knows that because she's already beyond that. She's like, all right, it doesn't matter if he knows this or not. So let's just yep. taunt him and I can be the cat with the mouse playing with it. She's already lining up her checkmate. Yep. I love her. All right. Back on the stormy seas. Aang clings to his driftwood and watches as his glider gets swept away by the waves. He gives in to his negative feelings and acknowledges that he isn't going to make it. He's failed. Suddenly, the spirit of Roku appears before him. You haven't failed, Aang. If anyone is to blame for the state of the world, it's me. I should have seen the war coming and prevented it. You inherited my problems and my mistakes. But I believe you are destined to redeem me and save the world. Aang isn't convinced and turns away just as he's washed in sudden moonlight. The spirit of Yue descends from the sky above him. You already saved the world and you'll save the world again, she says. You can't give up. The rain stops and the sea calms. Aang closes his eyes and finds his determination again. You're right, I won't give up. He bends the waters into a wave around him and climbs onto his driftwood like a surfboard. Yue strengthens the wave behind him and Aang is swept across the ocean. The scene shifts to a volcanic island where Aang's friends find him passed out on the shore the next morning. Katara runs to him in relief and hugs him as tears stream down her face. Their hug turns into a group hug when Sokka, Toph, Momo, and even Appa join in embracing their friend. I have so much to do, Aang says after a moment. Katara promises that he will have their help, and Toph jokes that he can't get out of training by coming to the Fire Nation. Aang's glider washes up on the shore, broken and torn. Aang holds it and decides to finally give it up and embrace the future before him. He understands now that if someone saw it, it would give away his identity. He erects his glider in a rock where lava flows freely and leaves it behind to burn. That's the end of our episode. I just want to say how bad the blockade is around Crescent Island (laughs) that they just like keep on going there as if it's no big deal. It's... (laughs) That's a great point. It's oh, the worst not blockade Not only ever. that, Zuko yeah. gets passed too. Yeah, but like with Zuko, you can kind of like headcanon it to be like, well, he's the blue spirit. So like he can sneak around really well. well also, Zhao lets him through and yeah, follows. But There's that. But like they just keep on. And it's not even Zhao's fault anymore. It's just the soldiers there are terrible. They're the worst. Line of ships can't get past it. Oh, wait, there's sky above and sea below. Whoops. What if, what if it's, this is my headcanon for it. At first, it was just this old temple that nothing really happened to. So it's kind of like a vacation spot if you're in the Fire Nation Navy. So you don't really have to worry about anything. And then, uh-oh, the whole temple goes down. Well, now there's definitely nothing here. So no one was possibly going to want to go through this blockade. So they're yeah. just all sleeping on the job is my headcanon right now. They're the night guard who sits in the security booth. Yes. And only lets in that one delivery guy whose name is Joe that you already yep. know because you've seen him. <laughs> and he does. They don't even look up for Joe. Yeah. They're just like, yeah. they're still yep. reading the magazine and going, all right, Joe, you're good. Yep. Meanwhile, some main character in some show sneaks in to steal plutonium or something. And security guard doesn't even look up because he's not yeah. Joe. No one else comes here. He thinks it's Joe. And he says, hey, Joe. And then the, the main character just goes, hey, oh, what's up? <laughs> yeah, classic Joe. Man, a few words. I get you. You're busy, Joe. Go through. Oh, God. Go, go to Crescent Island. You're fine. Exactly. 
Uh, one thing I want to point out that I missed at the beginning of the episode is this book three continues the trend of the book starting the scene up in a boat of some kind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we started off on the Fire Nation ship on this one. In book one, we started off in the canoe. Uh-huh. With Katara and Sokka. Yep. And book two, I forget what boat they were on, but they were definitely on a boat. Um, It was when they were on their way to the fortress. That's right. And they were being taken there by Paku and yep. some other water tribe warriors. Yep. That's right. Because they gave them the uh, the water and then the uh, the scrolls and all that stuff. And then the pat on the shoulder for Sokka. And you get a pat on the shoulder. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's very interesting. It's a, one of those things that doesn't really add much to the lore, but it's just a nice touch that they put on. The, they're, they're paying attention to these trends. Yeah, it's, it's a theme. Extent. Yeah. It makes the show feel intentional, even if you don't consciously realize that. Yes, I agree. All right, Greg, who was your MVP of the episode? Oh, my MVP. It's not gorgeous. Ozai, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> not really. I would say my MVP is probably... This is tough. This one's tough. I want to say as much as this is going to pain me, I think I want to say Azula because she really like her confidence in this episode was really astounding. And the fact that she is willing to pretty much show her hand and know that she's still going to win is just Mm. like spectacular. And she knows just like how to play her brother every step of the way. Yeah. That she does. If I can make an inanimate object the MVP, I would make Aang's glider that because, you know, rip. Aww. Yeah. Rip glider. I rip know. Glider. Let's say the glider is the honorary runner up yes. to MVP for that yes. reason. It's so iconic. It's a symbol. We burn it at the end, very symbolic of the journey ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Letting go of the past to move forward. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah, for me, God, it's so it's so hard. And I might have to jump on the Azula bandwagon here because this episode is interesting in that a lot of our characters are in kind of passive roles. A lot of this episode yeah. was focused on the internal state of our characters, yep. the relationships between characters. So no one really stood out over the rest because they were each meeting each other and figuring out their issues and moving on from that. Azula, however, you're right, stands apart in that way where she is just scheming and wheeling and dealing and doing her Azula thing, coming up with her plan to... She has such an interesting relationship with Zuko. She gives him so much thought because she's so actively trying to destroy him. Yeah. She must get tired at some point, I would imagine. Or it's just her favorite game. I don't know. But like... I mean, I know I even get tired of like my favorite games and activities and stuff. There must be somewhere she's just like, like, I imagine that she is just around her brother and he does something so incredibly stupid and she's just not in the mood to turn that into anything. But she's so annoyed because she feels like she has to. She has so much <laughs> at this point. I think Zuko is one of her toys. Yeah. One of the things that she messes with that she's always messed with yeah. since they were kids. And so he's just like, you know, something she returns to again and again because he makes it so easy because she's so smart. And he's just like, you know, slow on the uptake sometimes. Yeah, I think, though, you're right. I think in this episode, Azula is the one person who stands out as being someone who really gets things moving and yeah. stands out from the rest of the cast. Uh, what about your moral of the story? It's interesting because I think there's so many different morals to be said in this one. 
I think the one that is the most prominent is, I think, what some might consider to be the motto or the credo of the Air Nomads. And that's just sometimes it's important to just let go Mm. of an idea or an identity or something. Sometimes you just have to grow. You have to let it go to grow. Yeah. And that's not always the case, but I think we've learned that with Aang, where he's like, I'm the avatar. I'm the symbol of hope. I'm the balance between the spirit and the physical world. And he has to grapple with this notion where he can't run around saying he's the avatar. That's all he's been doing for two books is running around being like, I'm the avatar. <laughs> hey, yep. oh yeah, those two guys that you're fighting about, they're your ancestors. Guess what? They were brothers and they're really playing soccer and all this stuff. Yep. Listen to me. I'm the avatar. Yeah. And now he has to take a more subtle approach. And right after a large defeat, he can't quite grasp that concept. But, you know, the sooner he can, the better off he'll be. And we'll see that in the second episode when he, spoilers, kind of back to his old self. Kind of. <laughs> yep. I think my moral of the story is along the same lines where sometimes growth involves growing pains. Yeah. And you have to get through those negative emotions or uncomfortable emotions or even uncomfortable situations to reach the other side and find that new path that will take you to the next plateau of growth. Yeah. As we said before, you got to get through the storm. Yeah. You got to clear out the moss from the pool in order to proceed with your chakras. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What a great episode, though. I think this is a... really good. Man, a punchy way to start a season. This is my favorite start to a season so far in Avatar. Yep, me too. I feel like the other two seasons, while they're great, they didn't start off with the most excitement or the most character development. They're just kind of like, yeah, here, go. Oh, yeah, like, figure out the downsides of the Avatar state or the beginning of the series, which is just like, oh, yeah, you stumble upon them by accident. This was a lot more intentional in its morals and the characters and how they react with each other and how they proceed. And it's showing the growth that is shown. If you just think about it from the three different book openers, the growth from this one is just astounding. And it just gets me so excited for all the episodes that are going to happen now. Yeah, we made it. We made it, everyone. Oh, man. Season three. Here we go. Thank you so much for listening. Yes. We hope you're excited for book three and all of the crazy plot and story and character growth that is to come. Mm-hmm. You want to do some shout outs, Greg? Where can people find you? Yes. And remember, if you, as always, if you're caught up on episodes and bored on a Monday or Friday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you can always join me over at twitch.tv slash booster Greg, where we play whatever I want basically is what we're doing right now. Right now, (laughs) I'll still be on this game, I bet, by the time this episode hits. I've been playing Days Gone. I didn't realize how long it was. Mm. But I'm so convinced that I'm going to get through it on stream. I I can't stop halfway through. I'm not even halfway through. I'm probably like quarter way of the way through right now. (laughs) But we will proceed. It's great because Sam Witwer is the main character and I really like Sam Witwer. He um, is in many, many, many different things. You might know him from Battlestar Galactica. He's the voice oh, wow. of Darth Maul now in the Clone Wars and Rebels series. Ooh. He's also in, I can't I always get this mixed up. It was an American remake of a show with a vampire who is roommates with a werewolf. He was in that one. It was on sci-fi. Being human? Being human. Oh, wow. He was the vampire and being human in the American one, not the British one. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. So he's a, he's a, I really like him as an actor. He's really cool. So we're playing that currently, probably still by the time you're listening to this and I'll probably be on the game for the rest of my life. It's so long. 
Oh my God. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Yes. You can also find me on Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. And remember, you can always find Acorn and I both at the last Friday of every month for Avatar. Avatar on the Geek Generation. Yes. Network. And also, and also remember, remember, I feel like we forgot to say this last episode. So I'm going to say it now. I'm going to say it here again. If you want to help support the podcast in any way, you can always give us a five-star written review, which we will read at the beginning of the episodes now. You can email us directly if you're listening on Spotify or another platform that's not Apple Podcasts at avatarthepodcast.gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast in a different way and you want to gain access to the secret podcast, Secret podcast. Secret podcast. Okay. <laughs> and you want to get maybe a doodle page doodled by the two of us and some blog posts, go over to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast. And as long as you're representing a nation, you will be getting that content. Yeah. We're yeah. super excited to launch that. Yes. We hope you all enjoy it. Yes, 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 yes. You can find me on the interwebs at Acorn Bandit. You can also find me and my stuff over on joysons.com. That's J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com. You can add a slash pages slash acorn to that. And you'll see a list of all of my stuff and links to everything. Greg is impersonating <laughs> me right now in our <laughs> video call. I'm distracted now, but that's me. <laughs> I had so much fun. I had too much fun doing that. It's just like slash with the karate chop, slash with the other karate chop. Uh, it, it was a good time. That is basically how all of our Avatar live shows were going to go right there. Yes. Oh, and I have my hand movements too. Don't go, like, I know I'm like a standing off, like I'm not looking at Acorn purposefully and I'm just like talking and my hands are doing crazy things too. <laughs> yep. I know I do that as well. It's fun. Oh man. Well, coming up next time. Kuzan's Dance Party. And how to properly greet someone in the Fire Nation. All this and more next time on Avatar, Avatar the, the podcast. podcast. Avatar the Podcast is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.